The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I think there was a widespread belief that engagement with China, economic engagement in particular, but also societal, cultural, scientific, educational cooperation, all of these things, would uh, encourage tendencies that would lead eventually to the liberalization of China's political system as well as as its economic system. And that eventually China would transition away from this Leninist political system towards uh, a democratic system. What that meant was that even if China grew wealthier and stronger, it would not pose a challenge to the interests of the United States and its democratic allies because by that point, it too would have become a democracy. I'm Alvaro Marañón, fellow in cybersecurity law at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 8th, 2022. For decades, experts and analysts have written in great detail about the importance of liberalization and its role in promoting democracy and other Western values. Specifically, many believe that once a state began this track towards liberalization, open markets and a liberal democracy was inevitable. Yet, the several decades following Henry Kissinger's secret trip to China has proven differently, as China continues to grow more distant and confrontational with the West. I sat down with Aaron Friedberg, professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. Aaron is an expert on the relations between China and the West, and has written numerous articles and books assessing the economic, military, and political dangers of this rivalry. We explored his new book, Getting China Wrong, where we discussed the origins of the West's engagement with China, how and why the West miscalculated the Chinese Communist Party's identity and objectives, and how the United States and Biden administration can start getting China right. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 8th, Aaron Friedberg on Getting China Wrong. Aaron, many have written about this bilateral relationship and power struggle between the United States and China, but your new book presents a different argument, that the United States' engagement policies with China failed because its architects and advocates got China wrong. Can you speak generally about the timing of this book and what led you to write it? The book grows out of many years of observing uh, and to an extent participating in the debate in the United States over the direction of our policy towards China. Uh, And in the last, I guess, five or six years, there's been, I think, a growing sense across a wide range of observers, not only in the United States, but also in the West and the advanced industrial world more generally, that the existing policy, the policy of engagement has has failed. Um, And some people have claimed in retrospect that uh, this was a surprise that we somehow all got China wrong and misunderstood China fundamentally. I don't think that was true. Not everybody did get it wrong, but I do think the policy has has failed. And so the purpose of the book was really to understand how we had reached the point where we are now. What was it exactly that we thought we were doing uh, when we began this approach about 30 years ago? Uh, and equally importantly, why is it that the policy failed? And then, of course, the third and final, in some ways, most important set of questions has to do with what we should do next. Perfect. And I guess to begin, we got to start with the origins of engagement. Um, So what led and shaped the U.S.'s approach from, you know, Kissinger's secret trip to China up to the entry to the WTO? Was it a series of disconnected efforts or was it more calculated than that? I know you said it wasn't a surprise. I think there really were two variants of uh, the policy of engagement. And the first one, which I call in the book Engagement 1.0, uh, begins with the Kissinger-Nixon visits and extends so through the 1970s and 1980s down to the end of the Cold War. Uh, and that was really uh, 
directed at building up China's power in order to make it into a more effective and useful counterweight against what was perceived at the time to be the growth of Soviet power. So the U.S. was quite explicitly not concerned with China's uh, domestic political arrangements. There was some hope that uh, under Deng Xiaoping, China was induce, uh, introducing market mechanisms and was beginning to grow and become more uh, advanced technologically. And that was considered to be a good thing, again, because it contributed to the bottom line, to the growth of, of Chinese power. Uh, and as I say, that approach, I think, was consistent for about 20 years. And it was, it was quite calculated. The various policies implemented in order to advance towards that objective evolved over time at different times during the latter stages of the Cold War, the United States was became more willing to transfer uh, first commercial technology, then so-called dual-use technology, then what was referred to in the Carter administration as non-lethal military technology. And then in the Reagan administration, there was active consideration of actually transferring various kinds of weapon systems to China as the Cold War reached its reached its peak. It's interesting, I think, in looking back, it becomes clear that China's leaders uh, were interested in all of this, but they were especially interested in the more kind of fundamental technologies. I think they always had their eye not just on the growth of their military strength, but on the further and accelerating development of their economy. No, absolutely. That's a great observation. Uh, something that we've been seeing in recent years from semiconductors to all types of technology. And when you're speaking about the U.S. policymakers' view of engagement with China through like a lens of competition with the Soviets, uh, were there any other ongoing issues at the time or pressures that policymakers were facing that kind of pushed this push for engagement? During this first period, so in the 70s uh, and, and the 80s down to the end of the Cold War, I guess the, the principal countervailing pressure or concern, uh, and it ran through this and it was... I guess, more uh, intense at some times than others, was a continuing concern, for example, over the security of Taiwan. Uh, and that was a sticking point in the, in the pace and direction of developments between the United States and China, because the U.S. still had a kind of nominal commitment, even after it had derecognized Taiwan and no, no, no longer had an alliance. So there were some concerns about that. Uh, there was surprisingly little contemplation of the longer-term implications of encouraging China's economic and technological and potentially military growth. I think for many people, the focus was on the near term, uh, and I think people often had difficulty in projecting forward and imagining how this might all evolve. I found very few examples of kind of active contemplation of that possibility. There's one conversation that uh, Kissinger has with Gerald Ford when Ford was president, in which he makes a kind of offhand remark to the effect that, well, if China continues to grow rapidly or starts to grow rapidly, eventually, uh, he, he says something like, they're going to become a serious outfit. Uh, or in the latter part of the 80s, uh, when the Joint Chiefs of Staff contemplate the consequences for uh, Chinese military development of transferring various kinds of uh, military systems, there's a recognition that at some point, probably not until into the 21st century, uh, China's military strength could conceivably pose a challenge to U.S. power in, in the Pacific. Uh, the one example that I found that really highlighted these trends early on is a study that was done towards the end of the Reagan administration. It was organized by the Office of Net Assessment in the Defense Department. And it really was a, a relatively straightforward attempt to project uh, possible Chinese economic growth based on assumptions about China's, uh, the size of China's population and the possible growth of its productivity as it introduced new technologies. And what it concluded was that within a couple of decades, so by 2010, China could conceivably have the world's second largest economy, which turned out to be right, uh, and that if it turned some portion of that economic growth towards military development and modernization, uh, by the early part of the 21st century, it could become a major military power. Uh, and that turned out to be right, but that study was somewhat obscure. And for the most part, people were not focused on those challenges. 
so that that prediction was quite accurate like as you were saying but at the time there were a lot of hurdles i guess for china to i guess reach that end point of being a global uh, economic power and in your book you speak in great detail about uh, the mfn status and i guess the struggle between human rights between presidential administrations can you speak about the first period about that and how it transitions into the second yes so what we've been talking about is this uh, engagement 1.0 and then there's something rather different that emerges in the early 1990s. And it's uh, it's brought about by a, a series of developments of, that happen in quite rapid succession. So June of 1989, Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, and then November 1989, fall of the Berlin Wall, and then a couple of years later, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, collapse of the Soviet Empire, the end of the Cold War. So there's just in a couple of years, there are these really earth-shattering developments. Uh, and what those uh, developments did was to sweep away the prior rationalization for the policy of engagement with China. So if the Soviet Union's gone, why is it exactly that we have to maintain good relations with China? Do we still want to help it develop its economy? And also, in contrast to the earlier period when American uh, decision makers said in some cases quite explicitly that Richard Nixon is supposed to have said to Chairman Mao when they first met, uh, we don't care about what you do domestically. All we care about is what you do in the outside world and your policies towards us. Well, that was no longer sustainable uh, after Tiananmen. There began to be quite a focus on the continuing repressive character of China's domestic political regime. So there's a debate, uh, what should be our policy towards China? And in particular, uh, this debate over most favored nation status, which reaches a, its culmination in the first years of the Clinton administration. Going back to 1980, uh, the Carter administration, at the point at which the United States actually established uh, official diplomatic relations with China, so 1979, 1980, uh, grants China most favored nation status, meaning that its goods, its exports are subject to the same relatively low level of tariffs as those of, of any other country. But uh, China is subject to special provisions, as was the Soviet Union, uh, namely that each year the uh, executive branch had to certify uh, that its uh, human rights policies were improving in order then to get uh, Congress to extend most favored nation status another year. And when Clinton first came in, he had been very critical of the George H.W. Bush administration for, as he put it during the campaign, coddling the butchers of Beijing. Uh, he said he was going to take a much tougher stance on human rights. And the initial idea was that the U.S. would uh, hold back most favored nation status pending uh, a review of China's human rights policies. And if they weren't improving, then the U.S. wouldn't extend MFN. But within a year, uh, he Clinton had really turned on a dime, and the decision was made to continue to grant MFN status more or less automatically and not to hold human rights over China's head uh, as, as the, the determining factor in our evolving trade relationship. And around that time, I argue that uh, a new set of rationales or arguments in favor of continuing close relations with China, continuing and expanding this policy of engagement with China emerged. Um, and there really were, I think, three interlocking arguments and set of, uh, sets of expectations. The first was the idea that, you know, although we perhaps didn't need China to counter Soviet power, uh, China was still an important player and could become even more important in helping to deal with various global challenges like proliferation, uh, climate change, even at that early stage, people were beginning to talk about that. And that over time, welcoming China into the existing international order, the so-called liberal international order that the United States had done so much to, to build and to manage, uh, would encourage its leaders to become and this is a term that was used later in the 2000s in the George W. Bush administration, a responsible stakeholder in that order. So it caused China's leaders to see that their interests lay in upholding the existing system and not trying to challenge it or, or overthrow it. 
So that was number one. There's kind of international political rationale. Number two, there was a belief that by integrating China uh, more and more rapidly and more extensively into what was becoming at that point a truly global economy. So this is the beginning of uh, a phase of, of globalization, extend, uh, extension of markets to just about every place in, in the world, uh, that that process would promote economic liberalization in China. So that as China was exposed to market forces and wanted to participate in a global market economy, there would be more and more pressure on its leaders to uh, allow its economic system to evolve away from kind of state-directed uh, uh, economic uh, management towards more and more reliance on market forces so that over time, China would eventually become a market-driven economy, more or less like those of the Western advanced industrial democracies. And that idea takes hold in the 90s. It's really important in the debate over uh, entry into the World Trade Organization that perhaps we can talk about. Uh, and then the last uh, expectation and rationale, uh, the one that's become most controversial in retrospect, because some people now say, well, we didn't actually say that, and we didn't actually mean that. But I think there was a widespread belief that engagement with China, economic engagement in particular, but also societal, cultural, scientific, educational cooperation, all of these things would uh, encourage <clears throat> tendencies that would lead eventually to the liberalization of China's political system as well as, as its economic system. And that eventually, and I think in the early 90s, many people believed sooner rather than later, uh, China would transition away from this Leninist political system towards uh, a democratic system. And what that meant was that even if China grew wealthier and stronger, as it was expected to do as a result of engagement, it would not pose a challenge to the interests, the security, the welfare of the United States and its democratic allies, because by that point, it too would have become a democracy. So it's a complex set of interlocking arguments that kind of come into place in the early 1990s and persist really for a couple of decades, more or less unchallenged thereafter. And it's it's interesting, these three rationales, those status quo, the market forces and liberalization, you go in great detail in the following chapters and breaking down how this, again, is just mischaracterizing China and getting it wrong. So if we could speak a little bit into how China began perceiving all, all these major changes, global developments in the 80s and 90s up until their admission to the WTO? I think it's clear in retrospect that the CCP leadership had a very different view of what was going on in the world, uh, and certainly a very different set of expectations about engagement than the United States and its Western partners. Uh, I think, you know, to, to put it bluntly, China's leaders believed that with the end of the Cold War between the United States and the West and the Soviet Union, Essentially, a new Cold War had begun, although a quiet one, an undeclared one, in which they expected that the U.S. would turn its full attention to them, to the last uh, holdout, as they saw it, of, of socialism, and that the aim of U.S. policy would be to encircle and contain China and to undermine it from within. So they really saw engagement as a potential trap that was meant to do, in fact, the things that many Western leaders thought that it would do to unleash these forces that would lead to liberalization, which, of course, from the point of view of the CCP leadership, meant putting them out of a job. So their view was, was very skeptical, and uh, they were alive to the dangers, as they thought, of, enge uh, of engagement. Deng Xiaoping famously said at one point, you know, that uh, when you open the windows, you let in fresh air, but you also let in flies. So he's acknowledging yeah. there that you know we're gonna we're gonna benefit from opening the windows and engaging more actively, but we also have to be very alert to these flies, which of course are the dangerous or seductive, seductive and subversive ideas of of liberal democracy, and to and to guard against them. At the early part of the post Cold War period, so starting in the early nineties. Uh, China's leaders believed that they were relatively weak, which they were, and relatively poor, which, th which they were. They had really only begun this transition to greater reliance on market forces 
uh, as I mentioned, uh, when Deng Xiaoping came into power, so the, the late 70s, early 80s, it's just getting underway. Uh, they also, uh, for strategic reasons, as I've indicated, felt that they were uh, potentially encircled. And they were also under a good deal of diplomatic and economic pressure because after Tiananmen, the United States and other Western countries for a while imposed uh, economic sanctions on China. So China's leaders believed that they had to be cautious and kind of work their way out of this uh, potentially dangerous situation. And Deng Xiaoping is supposed to have said or written in a document that was circulated to his high party colleagues in the summer of 1991, so right before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, in effect, we have to be careful. We have to, as he put it, to hide our capabilities and bide our time. Uh, by which I think he meant we have to avoid further confrontation with the United States and with the West. We have to take the maximum benefit from engagement that's being offered to us. And we have to be cautious and wait until our power begins to grow before we can begin to pursue more ambitious external objectives. So I think that's the, uh, the mindset with which they entered into this process of engagement in the early 90s, not with any intention of doing what we thought they were going to do or we, what we thought they had to do. So far less aggressive. And you speak about the party leads everything from the international perspective, but a little bit domestically. Can you talk about the CCP's vision, uh, some of their anxieties and desire for monopoly power? I think the most important feature of the Chinese political system and the aspect of that system that Western observers have been slow to fully recognize and acknowledge. And this is really the essence of getting China wrong, in my view. It's, it's misunderstanding uh, the essential characteristics of its political system. It's a Leninist political system. It's designed and operates along lines uh, that were laid out by Lenin in his uh description of how the Soviet Communist Party uh, needed to organize itself in order to seize power in Russia, and then how to, to govern and control the Soviet Union. It's the same basic idea. Uh, so it's a centralization of power in a single political party, which allows no uh, domestic political opposition uh, that penetrates into every corner of society and the economy and has the authority to exert control over all activities going on within the society. It's not checked by, by laws or any kind of philosophical notions about individual rights and so on, uh, and which also makes extensive use not only of these instruments of repression and control, but also of propaganda to mobilize the population and also to pursue external objectives. So it's a Leninist system, and in my view, uh, all along, whatever we might have thought, the people who ran and are running the Chinese Communist Party uh, had no intention ever of loosening their grip on domestic political power. In fact, in many ways, they saw their most important goal as ensuring that the Communist Party would maintain its monopoly of domestic political power indefinitely. Uh, in some sense, I think they see themselves as the last dynasty. You know, They come from a history in which dynasties have risen and then fallen, they have no intention of allowing the CCP dynasty, if we can call it that, uh, to, to decline and, and fall. Uh, so that's been a fundamental objective. And they've used a mix of different kinds of policies in order to maintain that grip. I think in some ways, they've been quite flexible uh, about the means. They've been very fixed in their ends, but flexible about the means. And in the book, I talk about this mix of, of three elements. Um, and this goes back to Deng Xiaoping and continues in different combinations down to the present. First, uh, there's always repression uh, in various forms. It's ebbed and flowed. It's sometimes been more visible as it was at the time of Tiananmen. Sometimes it's been more subtle, maybe in the early, in the 1990s, early 2000s, a bit more targeted. Uh, and at other times, as now, it's become quite extensive and, and quite visible. But there's always been repression. Uh, second is what I refer to as co-optation. So the idea that the party is going to maintain its control, not just by crushing opposition, but by giving people some of the things that they want. 
And initially under Deng, and Deng was very explicit about this, if we don't achieve economic growth, if we don't uh, improve the lives of our people, we will fall. So initially, and really down to the present, the promise of material goods, the promise of an improved life has been a part of that program of co-optation. But at different times, and especially I think in the early 2000s, the party has also uh, attempted to do other things to satisfy other kinds of, of needs, um, addressing or attempting to address or appearing to address the problem of corruption, uh, recognizing that people were very unhappy with environmental degradation and trying to do things about that or healthcare, other things. So trying to co-opt. And then third, uh, and finally, and we see this now very clearly, uh, it's become, an ex uh, I think, an especially important element in Xi Jinping's program for maintaining control is what I'd refer to as indoctrination. Uh, so putting out ideas and inculcating these ideas in the hopes that they would cause the Chinese people to see their loyalty as lying with the party and to maintain their uh, allegiance to the party, to preserve the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. And after Tiananmen, really, it's it's within a matter of days. Uh, Deng meets on one occasion with a number of People's Liberar Liberation Army generals, the people who had put down the revolt in Tiananmen. And what he says to them is, we have not placed enough emphasis on ideology or on indoctrination. And I think what he recognized was that Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought uh, had really begun to lose its grip on the imaginations of the Chinese people, maybe especially younger people, and that something additional was required. Uh, and that additional thing emerges pretty early in the, in the 1990s, and it's, it's nationalism. Uh, so the party begins a program with what's called patriotic education, which presents and teaches younger people a particular view of Chinese history that emphasizes the so-called uh, century of humiliation, the period from the Opium Wars in the 1840s to the founding of the People's Republic in the 1940s, and the CCP's role in freeing the Chinese people from this degradation. And that nationalism, that nationalist part of China's official ideology, I think, has evolved and it's grown, and it's now the central element, I think, in Xi Jinping's program. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You bring up a lot of interesting points in your book when you're describing this party leads everything evolution. Um, and in particular, you talk about the struggle they often face between the party and the leader themselves. Can you expand upon this and kind of the dangers they saw from the Soviets about giving their leader too much power? Yes. If you, if you go back um, to the period immediately following Mao's death and, and through the 1980s, uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, on the one hand, exercised extraordinary power himself. On the other, uh, he recognized the dangers of this concentration of power as it, the point that it had reached under Mao and tried to do a number of things to uh, prevent that from happening again. Um, so over the course of the 90s, the ideas introduced that general secretaries of the party will serve uh, only for two consecutive terms. So they'll be in office only 10 years uh, that, and this is more informal, that they'll avoid cultivating uh, so-called cult of personality, 
uh, as Mao did or as, as Stalin did. Um, and he's trying to not only to avoid the excesses of, of a Maoist style dictatorship, but also to kind of stabilize the system so that it can continue to function more or less smoothly. One of the problems with authoritarian regimes historically has been uh, they often don't have strongly institutionalized mechanisms for handing off power from one leader to the next. And so they've been subject periodically to power struggles. So this was an attempt to kind of stabilize all of that. Um, however, and this is what I talk about in the book, all of those constraints uh, really took the form of quite weak norms. Uh, and the system always had the potential for this concentration of power. There really was no uh, check on it. There's no legal check uh, that prevents a leader from concentrating power more heavily in his hands. There's no institutional check and balance. You know, there's no there's no Congress. There's no independent uh, bill of rights. Nothing like that. Yeah. No bill. I mean, there may be. Uh, <laughs> they they say these things, but nobody really really believes mm -hmm. them. And yep. what what's happened under Deng Xiaoping just just briefly, is that he's brushed aside these constraints and proceeded to concentrate power more heavily in his own hands. Uh, but in doing that, he's not, he's not overthrowing the existing system. I think he's just making it operate in the way that it was initially designed to operate and which arguably makes it most efficient, but also clearly carries some significant risks with it. So this flexibility, this lack of bureaucracy, I would say, uh, played an active role in the bird in a cage discussion. You talk about the economic forces and the struggle over market forces. Can you speak a bit about what the struggle was and some of the policy efforts, such as like the IP, uh, I guess, campaign or war? This, this notion of the bird in the cage, this is a, a term that uh, was used by one of Deng's associates, Chen Yun, uh, back in the 1980s, and when there was very active discussion about how to change China's uh, state-directed communist system in which all the means of production were owned by the, by the state and so on. And as I mentioned, Deng recognized the power of, of the market and wanted to introduce it in order to increase efficiency and increase production and make China more wealthy. But there was, from the beginning, there was a question of how far to go with that. So the Western idea was once you freed up those market forces, they were essentially unstoppable and they would expand and expand until the market dominated. But China's leaders recognized that as a possibility, but saw it as a danger because in their minds, it meant that uh, the power of the party would be eroded. So they're willing to give up some of that power and control over the economy to let the, uh, let the market play a greater role, but they always want to make sure that the party ultimately remains in control. So Chen Yun said, uh, in effect, I mean, he didn't spell it out in this way, uh, the market is like the bird. Uh, it's, it, it lays the egg. It's the productive driving force in our economy, and we have to allow it some space. But the cage is the party state and the political system, and we always have to make sure that the market is contained within the party state. And here too, I think, and I try to trace this out in, in one of the uh, central chapters of the book, uh, over time, China's leaders have revised and refined and altered the dimensions of the cage in various ways. But in my view, they never had any intention of letting this bird fly free. They weren't going to let market forces run, run wild, uh, and they weren't going to allow them to erode their political power. And it's been a an ongoing process of experimentation. They've used a differing combinations of policies in order to, to achieve and sustain economic growth while at the same time preserving the power of the party. And they've been able to do that up until now. I think there's a question now whether they're going to be able to continue or whether they're moving in a direction that's going to so constrict the space of, for the bird that it may actually kill it. It hasn't done that yet, but that's been the ongoing debate, and and uh, that's the problem that the CCP leadership have believed uh, that they faced. And here again, I think there's been a, a really a deep misconception in the West, and that is whenever people saw some expansion in market forces, they 
believed that that was an indication that China was moving down a kind of one-way street that could only carry it in a certain direction and would only carry it towards an outcome that we would like and we, that we would recognize. But in my view, that's never what the party intended. And there were kind of guardrails. They would move some distance towards relying more heavily on the market, uh, but they would pull back when they saw a challenge emerging to the, to the power of the party. And they've been struggling, I think, to come up with a way of continuing to grow and to grow rapidly without doing the things that Western economists and many, for a time, many Chinese economists advocated, which is to adopt policies that would, in fact, liberalize more extensively and would unleash market forces to sustain future growth. And there are people who believe they've reached a point now where they aren't going to be able to sustain growth unless they do those things. But uh, they managed in the past, and I think they're trying to come up with a formula that allow them to do that in the future. And it, in my view, that formula involves not greater liberalization, as was expected after China entered the WTO in, in 2001, but a strategy that puts more and more emphasis on state-driven uh, technology development. I think that's the key. That's They're putting all their bets, or many of their bets, on technology and achieving leaps forward in technology and productivity to sustain growth rather than uh, liberalizing and letting private companies just do what they're doing and relying more on uh, on individual economic incentives to, to sustain growth. And regarding this period of experimentation that you discuss, it, it wasn't all successful, correct? There was periods of severe tension and economic instability that did threaten the party at periods in the 80s, 90s, correct? That's right. Uh, and in fact, in the first period, which is when Dunk first comes in and begins this so-called reform and opening up in the, in the 70s, that really was a kind of bottom-up, market-driven uh, period of, of growth. Uh, but it was also quite unstable. It unleashed inflation, which contributed to political discontent, which contributed to Tiananmen. Tiananmen and the protests around the country were not just about political freedom. They were about dissatisfaction uh, with inflation and economic instability. Uh, so in some ways, that first phase came very close to resulting in the overthrow of the party. And after Tiananmen, uh, I think Deng reaches an accommodation with his uh, more conservative colleagues in which he effectively says, we are going to crack down and make sure that there isn't political liberalization. We're going to make sure there's never a repeat of Tiananmen, but we are also going to proceed cautiously. We're going to continue cautiously with uh, relying on, we're expanding the use of market forces to generate growth. So that's, that's a period in which, you know, there's a real, a real challenge. Uh, and the party in the 90s um, implements a model of growth, which is sometimes, I think, misinterpreted as sort of a continuation of this purely market-driven uh, approach, but really has a, a huge role for the party state. It's, uh, it's driven by enormous investment in infrastructure, residential construction, and so on. Much of it carried out by state-owned enterprises, much of it funded with uh, loans from banks that are controlled by the party state. So it's a there's a big role for the party in all of that, even though from a distance, maybe it looks like uh, market-driven growth. And at the same time, uh, developing a, a largely private sector that's focused more on, on exports. Uh, but there too, the party state plays a key role, manipulating the exchange rate. So it's advantageous to companies that are producing in China, uh, modifying laws and procedures so as to encourage Western companies to invest and uh, establish uh, productive facilities in China. So there's a big party state role, even in the development of China's uh, private sector during the 1990s. So it's never, you know, it's never a pure one-way movement towards, towards the market. And then, uh, you know, beginning in the early 2000s, you have uh, Chinese leaders, including uh, Wen Jiabao, uh, so Hu Jintao's number two, uh, who warns uh, in 2007 that the existing model is unstable, unsustainable, and needs to be modified in some way. 
Uh, and I think the point there is we can't just keep pumping investment into the economy. We, you know, we've built all these roads and bridges and at some point it becomes wasteful. And we also can't continue to rely on being able to push out enormous and rapidly growing volumes of, of exports out into the world. We have to come up with some way of, uh, of continuing to grow that is based on a different model. Uh, and at that point, you have people saying, we've got to liberalize, we've got to allow more private consumption, we have to uh, allow banks to make decisions based on uh, estimated returns, not on what the party state tells them to do and so on. Um, but they don't go that route in the end. They shift towards this strategy of relying much more heavily on uh, state-directed technological development. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying a vastly complicated story, but that's the stage that we're, we're in now, begins during Hu Jintao's period and really accelerates like everything else under Xi Jinping. The optimism with China, if you could speak about this, when they first got into the WTO and then up until 2001 and the 2008 financial crisis, it's it, maybe I'm benefiting from hindsight, but it seems that there were a lot of red flags, as you, you mentioned. Uh, were there any alarms raised by U.S. officials at that time or were they distracted by other developments to not really focus on the China threat? Well, it's a, it's a mixed story um, and it kind of unfolds at different uh, at different speeds in different domains. So, you know, there's the kind of strategic domain, the development of Chinese military. There's the economic domain, the question of whether, you know, China is moving towards greater reliance on markets. And there's also a kind of domestic political domain, the question of whether they're, they're liberalizing. And, you know, different people in the U.S. are focused on different aspects of, the, of that story. Uh, and become concerned about what they see at kind of different rates. Uh, you know, on the military front, there really were worries being expressed about the direction and intent of China's military modernization going back to the 1990s and a recognition in at least some quarters, some parts of the military, some parts of the intelligence community, some parts of the wider civilian analytic community focused on defense that what China was doing was beginning to build up capabilities that were targeted on us and on our forces, particularly in the, in the Asia Pacific. And people were beginning to warn against uh, about that. I think if not for 9-11, uh, the U.S. would have focused much more attention on that and we would be better off in terms of the military uh, balance today than in fact we are. But instead we got deflected uh, and spent the better part of two two decades worrying about uh, terrorism and insurgency and focused on the Middle East and, and Afghanistan and so on. Um, <clears throat> but there began to be some worries about China's military as early as the late 1990s. Those never went away. Uh, and I think they began to grow again uh, in, in the early 2000s or maybe the beginning of the, f uh, of the 2010s. On the economic front, um, you know, the optimism about where China was going reached a peak with WTO accession because people believed that by signing on to the WTO and entering into these various commitments that they had, uh, uh, the CCP regime had locked itself into this process of liberalization. And really, it was going to be, a, you know, an accelerating and no turning back. Mm -hmm. No, t exactly. It was inevitable. No turning back. Um, you know, we we sort of won that one. And that was just a question of watching it unfold. But um, again, from very early on, you have people beginning to worry about whether, in fact, uh, Beijing is living up to its commitments. I mean, there had been concerns about China's economic policies in the 1990s. Um, and the people who lost out in the debates over whether ch China should get most favored nation status and whether it should enter the WTO were those who worried about its economic model. So there were labor unions uh, that didn't like the idea that, you know, American workers were going to be competing against workers who were paid much less and had fewer freedoms. Uh, there were representatives usually of some older manufacturing industries who recognized that uh, as their products began to be uh, manufactured more cheaply in China, they would suffer competition. Uh, but they, they sort of lost out to the more high tech industries, um, uh, also to the financial sector, and also to uh, manufacturers who realized that they could take advantage of the opening uh, in China to move some of their productive 
capacity to China and, and use those lower lower wage workers. But there's worry and complaints, uh, and they I think they grow over the first two decades of of the 21st century. Um, and you have a widening array of companies and sectors that begin to become dissatisfied with what they're getting from China and a growing sense that maybe uh, China is gaming the system, uh, beginning to or continuing to do things that we thought they weren't going to do, uh, like forcing Western companies to turn over technology in return for having the right to operate inside China, and also doing a bunch of things that I think people didn't really anticipate, in particular, engaging in this massive theft of intellectual property through various means, including via cyber. So that grows. Um, and maybe, you know, there's no one point, but in 2015, uh, China issues this 10-year economic plan made in China 2025. And I think that becomes kind of a lightning rod, uh, a wake-up call, not just in the U.S., but also particularly in Europe because it spells out very explicitly goals which are not consistent with the idea that we're just going to kind of let market forces decide what gets made where, and it's all a matter of comparative advantage. It's clear that the regime uh, intends, for example, to dominate the domestic production of certain, uh, of certain goods and also to capture growing portions of the global market for those products. So people are confronted face-to-face -face with this kind of mercantilist uh, strand in China's economic policies. And then finally, on the, you know, the, the uh, judgment about what was happening inside China, um, there's a fair amount of optimism, I think, uh, during the 90s and into the early 2000s. Um, for a time, I think the CCP regime did loosen up. It, it experimented, I think, with new kinds of ways of co-opting uh, the public. So letting uh, non-governmental organizations operate inside China to provide certain so uh, social services, um, allowing newly trained lawyers to use the courts to uh, defend the interests of, of Chinese citizens, allowing the internet for a time to be used to express some criticisms, at least, of, of what the regime was doing. And Again, people in the West kind of fastened on that and saw it as representing an inevitable trend, but really it was a temporary development. And the regime begins to reel that stuff back in during the second five years of, of Hu Jintao's time in office for various reasons. And then Xi Jinping really slams things into reverse. So it's, it's a long process. I think of it as sort of like peeling the layers of an onion uh, and the uh, the optimism about where China is going in each of these domains uh, diminishes over time, but it, there's no one moment at which there's kind of a, a universal recognition that this is all not working out. And even to this day, there are some people who don't acknowledge it, but the numbers of people who do see it are much, much greater than they were a few years ago. So at least there's some growing recognition uh, that China is becoming problematic and the, the approach has not been working. And when looking at the respective aims, you can kind of, you can kind of argue that China's strategy has worked for better compared to the U.S. Would you think that's a fair uh, representation? I do. If you look at what were our objectives, what were our policies, and what have been the outcomes. Uh, so responsible stakeholder? No. China is now a revisionist power that's trying to alter important elements of the global, uh, regional and global orders in Asia, but also more broadly. Uh, economic liberalization? No. In fact, to the contrary, they seem to be relying even more heavily on statist mercantilist economic policies than they were 20 years ago. Political liberalization? Absolutely not. The regime is, if anything, far more repressive than it was 20 and 30 years ago. Some people argue it's more repressive than at any time since the Cultural Revolution. So by the standards that I think we set for ourselves, uh, our policy, our strategy has failed. Um, now, what were their goals? They don't always spell them out precisely in the terms that, that we might expect, but I think there really were three. One preserve the CCP's monopoly on political power. Check. They've done that, at least for now. Two, 
take advantage of engagement, especially economic engagement, to build up all the elements of uh, what they refer to as China's comprehensive national power. So to become economically more wealthy, technologically more advanced, military more, militarily more powerful, check. They have clearly done all of those things. And then three, I believe from the beginning, the CCP leadership has had in mind external objectives, which would challenge our view of the the status quo, uh, that in their own region, I think they've always hoped and uh, aimed at reestablishing China as the preponderant power in Eastern Eurasia. And that would mean weakening and ultimately pushing out the United States, weakening its position and pushing it back so that China could reemerge as the dominant player. And I think this is the last piece, which I believe has emerged now more clearly under Xi Jinping, really to challenge the United States as a global power to build up China's power and influence to the point where they were equivalent to and perhaps eventually superior to those of the United States. They haven't yet fully achieved those two external objectives, but they've moved a long way towards being able to achieve them. So I think by those standards, uh, it's pretty clear at this point that their strategy did a lot better at moving them towards their goals than ours did at moving us towards the ones we had set. And this renewed aggression, uh, I guess to end, uh, two-part question, this renewed renewed aggression, how much of it is attributable to their current leadership or is it more of an expansion of the party? And the second part is, looking forward, is there anything the U.S. can start doing to getting China right? I think the tendency towards greater, let's say, assertiveness, uh, maybe, maybe aggression is the right word or will become the right word, but more assertiveness, more openly trying to achieve uh, external objectives that would change the status quo, like asserting China's dominance over the South China Sea, for example, now moving towards reclaiming Taiwan as they would see it. I don't think that's something that uh, Xi Jinping, that started with Xi Jinping. I think the shift towards greater assertiveness began under Hu Jintao. And it really uh, I think the the marked shift in that direction begins after the global financial crisis, so 2008, 2009. And it reflects a shifting judgment on the part of Chinese leaders about China's relative power. So in my view, their objectives have been more or less constant, their external objectives. What's changed is their assessment of their ability to achieve those objectives. In other words, their assessment of the relative uh, distribution or balance of power between themselves and, and the United States and its allies. So their assertiveness begins to become more evident as they conclude that the United States, the West, have entered into a period of accelerating relative decline and that they have the opportunity to step out and become more, more ambitious. And that accelerates under Xi Jinping, like everything else. I think it becomes clearer, but it's a continuation of policies that began to become evident earlier. And most important, I think it's the continuation of policies that aim at objectives that have been pretty fixed for, for decades. So it's kind of repackaged like based on the reassessment. Okay, got it. Yes. It's, and it's more, it's more obvious. It's more evident. They used to be much more cautious about confronting us directly or appearing to challenge us in the 90s. That was certainly true. Uh, they are much less so now, and that's because they judge that they're powerful enough to do that. Especially with influence operations and the revisionist language we often see. Yes, the, the influence operations, I think, are an important part of this story that, <clears throat> you know, they, it's hard to judge their, their impact. But from early on, I mean, really from the beginning of the uh, relationship between the United States and China in the 70s and accelerating down through the 90s, the CCP has sought to cultivate uh, friends and uh, exert influence over the perceptions and the policies of uh, leaders and elites in democratic countries, not just the United States. Uh, and the goal of that uh, element of their, of their strategy was to delay a more powerful response to the growth of their power and to persuade people and to persuade governments that really they had no choice but to continue with engagement. And they've been very successful at that. Um, I say in the book, it's it's like all uh, influence and deception operations. It works best when it reinforces inclinations that are already there. So in a sense, 
China's influence operations have been pushing on an open door, at least until recently. But now there's beginning to be growing recognition of what they've been doing uh, and growing resistance to it. And you outlined this resistance as part of a new defensive strategy. Uh, could you slightly expand upon it? Yes. Uh, at the very end of the book, I, I spell out uh, kind of high-level abstractions about the general direction of our policies, uh, not you know the nitty-gritty of what our budget should be, but four elements. One is what I call mobilization, and what I mean there is that democratic governments have to speak much more openly and clearly about the character and the seriousness of the challenge that's posed by, by China. And I think we've sort of started to do that, but I don't think we've really found the right language uh, with which to do it. Because if you, don't, um, if you don't mobilize public support in democracies, there are limits to how much you can do, especially in implementing policies which are going to be costly and could in some cases be dangerous. So there needs to be public support. Uh, it's beginning to build. I think we've got work yet to do on that. Secondly is what I refer to as partial disengagement. And so I don't think we can or should try to decouple ourselves completely from, from China's economy, but I think we have to restructure uh, the economic relationship that we have with them in important ways to reduce our vulnerability to penetration and exploitation and economic leverage and better to defend ourselves against policies that they've been pursuing, which we've allowed them to pursue and which uh, by our openness, we've permitted to be more successful than they really should have been. And this has many elements, uh, shifting supply chains, reducing their access to our uh, high technology development, reducing our reliance on their market in the long run so they can't use the threat of withholding access to the market to try to pressure democratic countries not to oppose them or not to criticize them. There's a lot of work to be done there. The third element is what I refer to as counterbalancing. And that's something we've been trying to do and arguably been trying to do it since the 90s. I think that we're certainly trying hard now. Uh, and it's a mix of diplomatic and military efforts, both unilaterally by the U.S. and with our allies, to maintain, a, if we can, a favorable balance of hard power, especially in Eastern Eurasia, even as China grows stronger. And we're behind in that regard. I think we still have advantages, but they've been moving very fast. And especially in the military domain, they really pose a challenge to us that's much greater than it was only a few years ago. So that's a third element. And then the fourth um, is engaging more openly in what the CCP leadership now refers to as discursive struggle, which is really ideological rivalry. Uh, whether we like it or not, they see themselves engaged in an ideological struggle with the United States and with the West. Uh, and they believe that we are a threat, a challenge to them because of what we believe and because of the values that are embedded in our society and which we believe to be universally applicable. Uh, and they're trying to degrade and undercut the appeal of those values globally uh, to attack and criticize and run down the performance and success of systems based on those values and to elevate the superiority, as they claim, of a system that's based on authoritarian political control and uh, limited market freedoms to generate growth. And they're trying to push that set of ideas as superior to those of the liberal democratic West. I think we have to engage in that struggle, both by improving the performance of our systems, it's not just about words, but also defending them more vigorously than we have. And also by being much more open than we've been in pointing to the flaws and failings and, uh, uh, frankly, the evils of a system that's organized in the ways that the CCP party state system is organized. Uh, we've been too shy about that. We've been reluctant to give offense, I think, partly because we thought, well, this was going to pass away and they were going to become more like us. Uh, that's clearly not going to happen. And I think we have to pick up our side of this ideological rivalry because, and it's not just an American view, the European Union in 2019 referred to uh, CCP ruled China as a systemic rival of the liberal democratic countries. And I believe that's an accurate characterization. We have to behave accordingly. Thank you, Aaron, for the discussion and for the great book. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. The Lawford Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Look out for other podcasts including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Shellen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.